Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. I'm joined by Alex Steele here today, who's sitting in for Lisa Abramowitz. Boy, I tell you, it is a good thing to be a healthcare M&A banker. There's always a deal uh, in that space. Today, Pfizer announcing that it is acquiring Array Biopharma for $10.6 billion. To get the latest, we welcome our good friend Sam Fazelli. Sam is the director of European Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, but his day job is he's one of the best pharmaceutical and healthcare analysts on the street. Uh, he joins us from our London studio. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Um, boy, this price tag is just monstrous. Does this make sense to you, this deal that Pfizer's doing? Thank you, Paul. Yes, and uh, good morning to both of you. Um, I, so, you know, Pfizer's balance sheet is pretty strong. Um, the growth profile of the company going past the current patent expiry for Lyrica is, um, you know, they, they like it to be stronger than perhaps some of us think it is. We always thought they would do m a what the price tag is, a billion here, a billion there, what's, a, what's that amongst friends, right? <laughs> uh, but they're, they're buying what I would consider to be one of the preeminent um, drug developers amongst the biotechs. If you think about the number of drugs that this company is responsible for in terms of what's gone out there and deals they've done. So we calculate about 8.4 times 2023 sales. There's no profits to talk about just yet. So, 2023 sales. Yeah, yeah. But but those are those are sales that are not the you know they have reasonable probability of actually happening. The products are already on the market and they're, they're they've got some good data in hand. And in the end, um, it is at the top end of the range that we've looked at, but it's not the most expensive. Um, but Could you know that is what it is. Could, yeah, be worse, could be worse, is what, is what I'm hearing from Sam. Um, yeah. So uh, to that point, though, I feel like getting on drugs that will, or getting in the patent for drugs that will wind up cutting chemotherapy is going to be super, super hot in the market. Do we expect another company to come in and try and um, shuffle I, Pfizer I, out? Yeah, I don't think so. This doesn't. This kind of thing doesn't usually happen when you have two managements that have agreed and there's a big price tag out there already. It just doesn't happen. You know, I've never really seen it in biotech, so I'd expect not. So, Sam, what, what is so special about Array that would uh, cause Pfizer to step up and pay this price? So, th they described three pillars of value, and, and we basically responded to that already in our React, which is the kind of thing that we've seen. Um, the, there's a product on the market, or two products on the market, and there's um, ample opportunity for expanding the reach of those products. 
Um, and, and those revenues, you know, could easily be a billion or plus if they keep expanding it. And Pfizer can because they have very deep pockets. Um, the company has several products that have been licensed to other companies where the potential for royalties are, are meaningful. And then, of course, they have a bench of scientists who've been creating these drugs. And, and we don't know exactly what they've got in their preclinical hands in, in Boulder, Colorado. But there were some hints that Pfizer um, gave us over the call we just listened to, um, which makes it sound as if there's other products obviously expected to come along. But they've been a very productive team. So they would not split. And several times they were asked this question. They would not split the value that they've um, ascribed to each of those three pillars I've just told you. So how does explain to me how in the biotech world this works? Because normally in a different industry, if you make an acquisition, there's going to be some synergy costs you can get out of it. That's going to be a big thing. And then sort of when it's going to be accretive to earnings and then how you sort of meld the operations and will the cultures fit, et cetera. Is it like a different scenario in a biotech world? Yeah, I mean, Alex, that's a very good question. At the end of the day here, what you're buying is knowledge and the ability and the long history of these people developing these sort of drugs. Not that Pfizer hasn't got them themselves, but here's, here's a bunch of scientists. They said about 100 scientists, R&D people, based in Colorado. They've said they're going to keep the, um, the current structure of array in place to continue uh, allowing it to be innovative and, and, and you know, Pump out, pump out these drugs, and and they go into Piper's, uh, Pfizer's pipeline as opposed to having to be licensed out because the company is too small to develop everything. So, in these cases, it's really not about cost savings. So, Sam, if I'm a, a Pfizer shareholder, um, am I concerned? Do, do, do I read into a transaction like this that, gee, Pfizer doesn't have its own pipeline? Maybe its R and D isn't that good or that successful that it forces them to go out and buy, um, you know, products. Yeah, no, I don't think that's fair. Um, I, I think I think it's more about, um, you know, in the pharmaceutical business, it's all about shots on goal because once you take that shot, you don't actually know whether it's going to go in or not. So you've got to have a number of opportunities running at the same time to see which one actually comes to fruition. They have a number of drugs that are uh, that are looking interesting and exciting. And, you know, it's two steps forward, one step back with pharma. So you've got to expand the, 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 the range that you've got access to and then make sure that... Um, you have the wherewithal to do it, which Pfizer does. Can I just ask a dumb question here? So, like, literally, is it possible that there's a drug that could reduce the need for chemo? Like, is that real? Because oh. that's amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know what? I, I was told years ago there's no dumb questions. So uh, There are. And, and there this, totally are. Don't lie. And, Everyone says that's not true. But. <laughs> and certainly this is not dumb at all because there's, that's exactly where pharmaceutical industry wants to go and cancer patients want to go. I mean, it's important to to realize that there is a little bit of a slogan slogan that's going on there too, because these aren't drugs that are that are uh, um, side effect free. It's just they're different to chemo. They may not include, you know, the usual things that chemo has got going with it is the hair loss and the vomiting, and you know, none of these things are nice, right? Uh, and you know, blood lo- blood counts going down and. Um, really feeling fatigued and who wants to right. be fatigued when you're trying to get treated right yeah so but these drugs do have their own side effects let's not let's not forget that and, and this is a triple uh, combination they're using for colorectal cancer going forward right sam fazelli thank you so much for breaking down this deal for us sam is the director of research european research for bloomberg intelligence joining us from the london studio
Well, trade tensions between China and the U.S. continue to simmer, putting even more focus on the G20 meeting coming up later this month. To get the latest on the trade discussions between the U.S. and China, we welcome Leland Miller, CEO of the China Beige Book International, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Leland, thanks so much for being with us. From your perspective, what is the latest with the U.S. and China? Are things kind of off again, on again? Where are we? I think that nothing has fundamentally changed since President Trump uh, levied the last set of tariffs a number of weeks ago. Now, if you read the headlines, it looks like we're descending into true gloom. The Chinese are preparing for the long fight. President Trump is getting excited about the idea of going big on tariffs into 2020. It's a political winner. Uh, nobody can get along. We're attacking their technology companies. So there's a lot of reasons why people think that this is disintegrating and that the, a deal's being taken off the table or is already taken. Uh, I don't think that's the case. As a matter of fact, I think that if President Xi reengages at G20, which we expect him to do, then the president is prepared to punt full tariffs and restart the talks. And I think that that's actually where we're heading right now. Why would Xi do that? In that, Trump said, if you don't do this, I'm gonna levy tariffs on you. So why would Xi then look like he's caving? Well, none of this is optimal for Xi Jinping, but you gotta look at the downside on this. So right now, uh, they're looking at the potential of there being 25% tariffs on all 500 billion of Chinese imports. In addition to the fact that Huawei, which is arguably the most, if not one of the most important SOEs in China, is on death watch because of what the Commerce Department's been doing to it and, and what the White House has been doing to it. So right now, it, none of this is optimal. But it was also not optimal to send Liu He uh, the night that Trump was was uh, announcing tariffs. It, it was a body blow to the Chinese. It looked bad. But at the same time, they're measuring the circumstances as being you know, what is the best we can get out of this? And the best they can get out of this is get a deal with Trump on trade so that they're not worrying about this for the, for, uh, for 2020. So does the, what's going on in Hong Kong, does that impact President Xi and, and how he might be perceiving these negotiations? That's kind of a body blow again, or a black eye to uh, President Xi with what happened in Hong Kong. Is that, is that gonna influence the trade discussions, you think? You know, it might. Um, all of this has to come down to the fact whether she can look strong while engaging with President Trump. Now, President Trump should, could have put out the olive branch to President Xi. Instead, he, he basically said, if you don't come and meet with me, I'm going to be really mean to you and we're going to, we're going to crush you. That doesn't make things easy for the Chinese. At the same time, there's a lot, of, a lot of hysterics going on right now. And Xi Jinping has to look at this. You know, How do I not look weak, but at the same time, engage enough to get all these irons off the fire so that I can concentrate on the domestic economy? Uh, the, the Chinese economy under the type of tariff pressure we're talking about, we'll have a much harder time later this year. And I think President Xi is balancing the pros and cons, making sure he has a consensus in the leadership. But I think that they are inclined to go forward. See, that's what I don't understand is that I feel like a lot of the rhetoric is uh, it's both it's so important for both of them. Therefore, they're going to have to do that. Um, in essence, if Xi accepts the fact that there are going to be tariffs on China no matter what, and that President Trump's going to ramp up the tariffs no matter what, he neutralizes Trump. Well, I think that in President Xi's mind, if he can get signals from the U.S. side that the tariffs are going to come off in a deal. So first of all, in order to continue the talks, President Xi would have to get some pledges from President Trump. First is 
Huawei is part of the deal. Second, that we're going to be start peeling these tariffs off, and you're not going to put more tariffs on while we continue to talk. So they create a new timeline. This is agonizing for, for, for trade and China watchers, but this is the way that things work. And if he can get a, a, an understanding that, you know, they were very close before. They were 97% of the way there. This idea that they, had, they didn't get most of it finalized is wrong. They're very close. They have to go back to where they were before. And if they do that, then they're very close for President Xi getting a deal that will pull off most probably not all, but most of the, of the tariffs they have now, no more tariffs, a, a respite for, for Huawei, a reprieve for Huawei. Uh, these are big things. So these are things that they cannot underestimate uh, and, and, and walk away from out of mere pride. So Leland, just talking about President Xi, how strong is his position in China today? It's, it has been remarkable that there has been pushback against Xi in the state media, among dissidents. Uh, I don't think his, his position is in any way threatened. But it is remarkable that he is getting flack for, for his handling of the trade war and handling of the economy. Now, this makes it even more important he doesn't look weak going forward. But I don't think there's a question, while, while this is not a, a one-person totalitarian dictatorship of any kind, he is the leader of China. He guides policy. And while he needs to make sure that he is not deeply offending the this Politburo Standing Committee, he still runs the show. So this is his this is his uh, show to run in terms of trade. And if he thinks he can he can negotiate with President Trump, you know, they're best friends after all, uh, then then he'll move forward on this. So um, John Author's Bloomberg Opinion columnist writes a lot about Dork Magnus's book, uh, Red Flags. I don't know if you've, if you've read that yet, but he talks about why Xi's China uh, is in jeopardy. And a lot of the conversations surrounding the book is really interesting in that Mao and Deng both had their own models for communist China, but that Xi has a totally different one, and that that's going to affect all these kind of trade decisions and arguments. Um, would you agree in that you can't look back at the last 100 years of China growth and extrapolate that to the next 100? Is that we're in a whole new growth kind of paradigm? Is that true? I think Xi's challenges are enormous, and he made it much more difficult for himself when he not only named himself, you know, president for life, but mm-hmm. then he ensconced it formally. Like this could have been the back background of everything. Everyone knows she's not going anywhere, but he made sure to make a public, uh, a public issue of it. When he did that, he tied his fortunes in very closely with that of the Chinese economy and that of China generally. So that anything bad that happens to the Chinese economy, who do you have to blame? Xi Jinping. Who do you, if, if China undergoes problems, who do you have to blame? Xi Jinping. So he has made his life much more difficult. Uh, I don't think he's going anywhere. I do think that the, uh, the pressures on him are going to be immense in the next few years with the, with, the, with the economy, even under the best set of circumstances. Uh, so this will be tough. And we could emerge from this a few years from now with more of a consensus-based leadership with Xi still there, but not with as much control, depending on things how things end up in the next uh, 18 months. How, how would you characterize the Chinese economy right now? Is it a 6.5% six, six grower or something less than that? Well, it's not growing at 6.5%. You know, the GDP numbers are always uh, yep. political narratives okay. uh, put, but put into a number. Uh, that said, you know, we have, we have data that's coming in right now, and we're, we're, uh, we're going to be announcing it next week. But what I would say is, is watch very closely to what the Chinese are saying. There's a lot of talk this week uh, from Beijing about how they have all these options in terms of stimulus if they need them. And one of the things that we've made very clear in the past is that when the Chinese are talking a lot about all the options they have, they typically have already started 
utilizing them. Okay. So I think that that's, that's where we're going, and, and we'll be able to talk a little bit more of this uh, in a few days. Good. We'll have you back for that because uh, I think that's one of the underpinnings of the negotiations and the assumptions is how strong is China's economy. Uh, the stronger it is, presumably, the you know tough, tough, tougher stance they can take uh, with the U.S. Well, what I find really interesting, though, and this is going to go to UBS uh, and sort of them using a bond deal over the Chinese pig right. statement yep. from Paul Donovan, uh, their chief economist, is that we talk different languages. Yeah. Like the West <laughs> and China are just... They talk different languages. They have different priorities. And like that to me is like a whole big rainbow uh, in, or not rainbow, but like big cloud as to how the conversation must be going when it comes to trade. Exactly. Leland Miller, CEO of the China Beige Book International. Thank you so much for joining us and breaking down uh, the ongoing trade uh, discussions. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, this week is Central Bank Week. We've got uh, the Fed, we've got the Bank of Japan, the Bank of uh, England all meeting. And of course, the FOMC, uh, uh, we'll have Fed Chairman Powell uh, speaking on Wednesday. So clearly the markets are focusing on that. To get a sense of what we might expect, we welcome our next guest, Matt Maley, Managing Director and Equity Strategist at miller Tabeck, uh, based in Newton, Massachusetts. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. What do you expect to hear from Fed Chairman Powell this week? Well, to be honest with you, I think uh, the market's going to be a little disappointed. I think the Fed chairman will be uh, a little less dovish than people are expecting. Um, no, no, no less dovish than he, he has been. There's no question they've made a, a change uh, to a more dovish tone. Uh, but their actions, uh, I just think in the past, especially in the past 10 years, where you know, central bank liquidity has been so important to the markets, uh, they, have, they haven't acted until we've seen a more significant move uh, both in the, uh, in the economy and and uh, in the economic data and in the uh, in the markets, uh, you know, the, the Fed's a little bit more market dependent uh, than they uh, than they uh, admit to. Uh, they are very data dependent, but they're also market dependent. So, how is the market actually positioned for this? Because a huge run up in utilities, the valuation's super high. Yet they're utilities and defensives for a reason. So, like, what's the positioning risk here? Well, I, you know, if if they do uh, signal a definitive uh, change in their in, in their actions, uh, you know, by actually saying that they're going to raise cuts pretty much no matter what uh, in July, uh, that's going to have a, a lot of people uh, caught off sides. Uh, not only are the utility stocks very strong, but uh, you know, con- consumer staples, another defensive group, has been very strong, and I think the the people will start to shift out of that and go into some of the new. Uh, uh, more growthy uh, names, obviously, uh, technology, et cetera. When we've seen the semiconductor stocks kind of roll over recently, they could bounce back. Um, I don't necessarily uh, think that's going to happen. Uh, again, I'm, I'm more cautious than uh, I think a lot of people are. But uh, the, the thing that really concerns me most is that the stock market is definitely pricing in the, a Fed move to a much more dovish stance uh, because it's not moving higher due to a better economy or better earnings, as we've seen that a lot of estimates for both economic growth and uh, estimates for the S&P 500 have come down in the last two weeks, not move up. 
Wouldn't it be amazing if, if that Jared J. Powell came out and he's like, okay, guys, we're going to cut this many times at this date, and that's what we're going to do. Take care. See you later. See you later. And everyone's like, right. great. Let's Off to the beach. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, there's no question he won't make it that quite that definitive, but if he, uh, you know, they usually tell you, you know, really telegraph it uh, well in advance. So uh, how he portrays uh, uh, the, how the July meeting is going to go is going to be very important. So, Matt, if, in fact, uh, the Fed is not quite as dovish as maybe the market is currently discounting, how do you play it right here? Well, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard. Number one, uh, I do think, like I said, that, that the, with earnings estimates coming down, uh, the consensus earnings estimates, uh, the economy slowing a little bit, uh, I think uh, raising a little bit of cash. And, 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 buy, and if you want to put more money to work, buy those defensive groups with buy them on weakness. Uh, you look at the, the overbought condition of the uh, consumer staples, which have been very, uh, obviously very strong. They've made new all-time highs. Same with the utilities. But the consumer staples name, I think are going to be the good ones. But most importantly, if we do get another leg lower, uh, which not, would not be the worst thing in the world. I mean, you know, we were only down 7%. Though. That's a normal and healthy move in any market, much less one that's being involved in a trade war. Uh, when you get that kind of downdraft, much like we got in December, now I'm not calling for a 20% decline like we got uh, in the fourth quarter of last year, but you get something down in the correction area of 10 or 12%, and you've got some money on the sidelines, you can put that to work in your favorite names at really good prices. But if you're prepared in advance, you can take advantage of it. If you don't have that cash on the sidelines, you won't be able to. How else are you going to hedge, looking for derivatives or anything along those lines, too? Well, people can certainly do that. Uh, the one thing I, I you know, th- that I, I worry about that is, is that the, the VIX is a little high, uh, given how much the, the market is rallying. Uh, so that makes the hedging a little bit more expensive than it was, uh, you know, say a couple of weeks, uh, you, know, before, you know, in April. Um, but you can certainly play, uh, you know, by, uh, especially in the SPY, the uh, S&P 500 uh, ETF, uh, the options in that market are, are, are very, very liquid, and, and you can get in and out of them very quickly. Matt Milley, thank you so much. Matt is Managing Director and Equity Strategist for Miller Tabak, uh, based up in Massachusetts. Well, the troubles continue at Deutsche Bank. The stock is down over 30% over the past 12 months. Bloomberg News reported this morning that the bank is considering exiting the U.S. equity trading business. Uh, to get the latest on all things Deutsche Bank, we turn to Yalman Onaran. Yalman is a senior finance writer for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone. Yalman, thanks so much for joining us. My first question is, when I saw that news about exiting the U.S. equities trading businesses, how can an investment bank be a global bank without trading U.S. equities? So what's going on there? It, it cannot. You asked the right question. I mean... Um, this is this is very unusual, and and you know they keep coming up with new restructuring plans, and and at the end none of them work, and they keep coming back to new another plan. But um, it's very radical, yet it's it's very it's it's kind of harmful because you know if you are an investment bank, as you said, you have to be in equities, and you have to be in the U.S. in equities because you know the most IPOs happen here the, you know uh, other kind of you know, uh, stock related uh, investment banking deals even M&A is really connected to to the ability to sort of connect with these uh, companies um in in every way so it's it's very unusual you know even after the big financial crisis the european banks that you know a lot of them that collapsed only Royal Bank of Scotland and, and Credit Agricole sort of got out of equities business altogether. 
Um, I mean, Germany says uh, the Deutsche Bank is going to continue maybe in Europe, but still not being in the U.S., that's really going to hurt their investment even further. So it doesn't, it doesn't look like a very great, amazing way out. And the analyst reaction uh, is was really unimpressed also. I mean, Deutsche Bank, uh, so, so Sakjian said that Deutsche Bank's plan is not aggressive enough. You also have uh, CMC Markets saying that they're well behind the curve. RBC saying that a bad bank's not going to do anything to re-rate the company. I mean, if doing what they need to do isn't good enough, but then doing something that's good enough would destroy the company, like what is the answer? I mean, you know, we can talk about bad bank, but first, the answer of why is it not aggressive enough? Because every analyst report that I've ever read in the last, you know, fuck God, two years now, is basically they need to they need to cut costs. They have they have too much cost, and and it's not only really getting out of businesses. It's really they have they have too many people in the back office. They have too many people doing things. Their technology is, is out of date. So. They can do the, the businesses with fewer people, and, and the bank has constantly announced job cuts, which they cannot deliver. I mean, and I've written this many, 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 many times over the last two or three years, is that they keep setting targets for reduction of, of uh, staff levels, and they can never hit those targets. Um, every other bank in the world, you know, in their, their peers, everybody cut a long time ago and pretty quick. Even if it's if it took a little longer for some of the European banks because they have uh, tougher you know um, labor laws, still they've done it. I mean, Deutsche Bank has really been bad reducing staff, and and thus they cannot make a profit. Um, so getting rid of a business like equities, but you're also cutting the revenue. Instead, if you manage to cut the cost of that business and continue to to get the revenue, then you would actually start making profit on it. Uh, but that's where they have really lacked, and that's what analysts keeps constantly saying that they need to cut the slack um, in their in their employee levels. Well, Yaman, it was also reported uh, this morning that uh, Deutsche Bank would consider uh, putting a lot of their troubled assets into a bad bank. What are those assets? I mean, it's really interesting at this stage because you know we had bad banks after the two thousand eight crisis. Um, and then, you know, Deutsche Bank and a couple other Europeans also did them after the European sovereign debt crisis. Um, these were legacy things that, you know, were really no longer good. They sort of, you know, they, they were all written down, but to just sort of separate them from the, the main uh, core business to, and show the, the investors, you know, what really was the core business was making uh, as profit and, and revenue. Um, but at this stage, banks don't have them. So I, I'm not sure what Deutsche is going to put in there. Uh, level three assets, which is sort of hard to value um, things that, that they sort of have to use their internal models to value. That means they're not liquid. That's one place. But even there, they only had 25 billion euros of level three assets the last time I looked. That was the first quarter of this year. Um, they're talking about 50 billion. I don't know where they're going to come up with you know, derivatives, more derivatives. That need to be put right. there. The the issue is, and I was reading an analyst wrote just before you called, and is is um, you know if they, if these things are not losing money, then it doesn't matter whether they're on a bad bank, good bank. It doesn't matter what it's called. Yep. If they're actually losing money and they, there's still more write down to be made, then that's tough because right. Deutsche doesn't have extra capital to take those take right, right down. So yeah. I don't know what they mean, how they're going to really make, do the bad bank work. Interesting. Yaman Onoran, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.